Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Literally an institution in this town of digging up old photos, old stories, collections, everything you can imagine under the sun about this great city. Greasy spoons, dives, old clubs. If you love this city, you're going to love it even more. Real people, real stories, real places. This is the Austin Found Podcast. Welcome back to Austin Found. I'm J.B. Hager. And I'm Michael Barnes. And we really appreciate you tuning in. We know there's a lot of choices out there for your entertainment. And uh, we hope you uh, enjoy this and, and spread the word about Austin Found. Now now that we're, uh, you know, we're approaching... What are we, a year and a half into this? Yeah, yes. about a year and a half year and into half. this. So a lot of episodes. Again and again, which I find fascinating, the subject of race yes. comes up in Austin. And and this is going back to 1953. That's right. Where you had the first Negro juror. And that's how it was named in the newspapers at that time. That was the terminology at the time. And the first... And there's there's some extra bits to this. It's not the first first one on a jury. It was the first one in the South on a murder trial of a white male by an African American. Right. Yeah. And the the image that I got I came across, and I'm pretty sure it was in a Portal to Texas History, which is a fabulous site run by the University of North Texas, and you you can find all kinds of gems there, and I especially go there for photographs. And a lot of them were scanned by the Austin History Center, so they have a a big Austin component. But it was the 1953 image taken by Neil Douglas, who we've talked about before, was a photographer at the time, was the caption was, Virgil Oliver, first Negro in the South to serve on a jury. And I just thought, that can't be true. <laughs> 1953. Yeah. And I, I dug a little bit more, went to the newspaper archives and found out, as you just said, the first African-American to serve on a jury in the South when the uh, uh, defendant was black and the murder victim was white. That's interesting because if most people would read that headline with the photo mm-hmm. and, and accept it as fact. Right, and it's just your inquisitive mind go. Wait a minute. Well, you, you, when you have the context in your head, yeah. when you when you realize as you go along that that that's a little late for that particular first timer. The reason that's important is it could have. What were there six white men on the jury with him for this murder trial? Right, and we'll get right. into some details of the murder in a minute. But if one person hangs the jury, right? Right. Doesn't th- he could walk free. Right. So it's that I'm sure that was very controversial at the time. It, it, it probably was. And, and there are two factors we have to consider here. One is that when they were doing the voir dire, 
That's not how you say that. Wadir. I have no idea what that word is. When they're <laughs> asking <laughs> the 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 jury pool oh. whether or not they can carry out the functions. Oh, uh, of a which juror. I've been through that process. Yeah. I was uh fascinating. I was in a jury pool for a murder trial. Wow. I did not get selected. I got selected once and we acquitted. And they probably thought I was more of a, a hard ass, but uh, I was not. Oh, <laughs> I thought, interesting. I thought she was the 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 defendant was was being railroaded, hmm. and they were mistranslating her Spanish, and I knew that. Hmm. And so I was like, "Something's fishy here." Anyway, interesting. That's way out of <laughs> no, but it it, it really it's an interesting process. Uh, you know, it, it, a lot of times people moan and groan selected for a jury, but. Well, they asked Virgil Oliver, could he convict a fellow African-American to, uh, with the death penalty? And he said, yes, I can. So that was a very important part of this. But the other is it, that it was a test case that Texas did not have African-Americans on uh, grand juries in important capital trials like this one. And so he was chosen specifically so that they could get out of the charge of, of racism. And, of, of course, having one guy mm -hmm. for the first time in history does not absolve you. But it, they, they were trying to avoid appeals based on race. So how old of a man was, was Virgin Oliver? Well, that's a good question because there are different answers. Yeah. I looked into the census records, and I calculated he would be 65 in 1953. The newspaper said he was 62. He was a porter at a downtown apartment store. But, yeah, he was probably 65. That's interesting. And you made mention in your article of – how you do this research that anyone can access in the public library. You can access right. all these uh, old newspapers. Also online. Yeah. Almost everything's online now. And in, in this particular case with the census, the last census that we have online is 1940. Mm. You know, it takes a very long time to get all that data up. But the last one that's freely available to the public online is, is 1940. And that's what I was checking about Virgil Oliver. Okay, let's talk about the incident that yeah. this, this juror had to uh, yeah. had had to hear. So we have a 26-year-old black man, Morris Addison, mm -hmm. accused of killing 23-year-old Thomas Alfred Hogan. Now th they worked together at a car lot, correct? Right uh, on South Congress, and. Interestingly, uh, th their characters were not what they seemed or has, as they were portrayed during the trial. Some people accused the defense attorneys, uh, the defending attorneys, of hiding some of the evidence that, and vice versa. But it, it seemed to be an occasion where perhaps alcohol was involved. Definitely the Anglo man, who was a student at University of Texas, was several of his friends said he had anger issues. So and race issues. Well, and he had race issues. Yeah, yeah that he yeah. was. As the trial progressed, oh, the trial was very short, and he was condemned to die. But various support groups, including one that 
met at the Doris Miller Auditorium in East Austin were convinced that he had been railroaded. And and it was a stabbing, by the way. It was a stabbing. He was stabbed six times. Uh, just to paint a picture of Austin at that time. Right. Like, in the mid-50s, we're a tiny town. We're still a small city, just a Th- small, small city. So this would have been a very big story. Oh, absolutely. You know, it's, it, it is the kind of crime that would have made the front pages for weeks, hmm. including when his case, after he went to prison, when uh, Morris Addison's case went through the appeals process, there was all this question of, was he defending himself? And hard to prove in in the past, mm-hmm. and defending himself from a noted hot-headed racist. Right, right, exactly. And so eventually, the governor gave him uh, a. I want to get the the term right. He he, he gave him an eleventh hour clemency in nineteen fifty five to not be put to death. Right to to life in but prison. He's not, that doesn't mean he's leaving prison. Right. But he did. But he did. <laughs> <laughs> Which was when I found a story in the Gallup's Daily News archives about 1981. This is really confounding because you think of him as being the innocent guy who was railroaded, but a kid who defend himself. I mean, these are young guys. Yeah, right? but apparently, soon after he his uh, death sentence was commuted, he he got out of prison. In 1981, he got into trouble, and the Galveston Daily News ran with a headline, Battered Mother Welcomes News of Son's Suicide. So what is this? And it turns out his horribly bruised 91-year-old mother, Lucy B. Addison, she said when she heard of Morris Addison's jail cell suicide in West Columbia, thank God now the beatings will stop. I had to read that twice, mm-hmm. you know, the, the quote that you pulled from that, because at first you think, oh, he was getting beat in prison, that she was referring to that. No, no. She's, she's happy he has relief from that life. Not no. at all. He was abusive to his mother. Right, right. And I don't know the backstory there, and I don't know whether he actually turned violent in prison, that you hear that. Mm-hmm. Or whether actually he was guilty of murder, and so uh, and he back- was. Correct me if I'm wrong. He was abusive to his mother to get right. money, get money out of her, because yeah. he had no career. Right, no. right. Which and he, which he would not have as a felon in Texas, especially back then. Mm. Uh, you could hardly get a job if you had been in prison. So the point of this, of what you uncovered, is it sounds like. Both parties were right. were bad people. Well, they did bad things. Yeah, and the it was easy early in this research to see this spoiled, racist white kid being the the bad guy, but then it turns out to be, you know, there were no real heroes in this one. Although you have to say that Oliver, the the black juror continued to live a full and happy and productive life. He uh, died on uh, March 17th, 1962, so about nine years after the, the trial. And knowing you, you wanted to find the obituary. I did, and I found it. <laughs> and he was a member of Ebenezer Baptist Church, which is probably the 
was at the time at least the biggest Baptist church in East Austin. And that church still exists. Oh, it's a beautiful yeah. church. Yeah, you know, I've been to services there. He was survived by his wife and two daughters, nine grandchildren and ten great-grandchildren. And he, he was noted in the obituary that he was employed by Scarborough's, the, the department store on, on Congress Avenue. Downtown. Right. right. But the obituary, amazingly, given what news that 1953 trial was, didn't mention it, did not mention the trial. That he was on this controversial. Right. You wouldn't have missed that if you were writing that. <laughs> you would not have missed that one. Well. But very, very interesting. If you'd like to read that story, that one is in volume two of Indelible Austin. That's right. Volume two, uh, more selected histories. Uh, we're still working on volume four. I know I've been announcing for the last few episodes. But it is, it is with the publisher, and it is maybe going to the printer soon. Uh, some of the things have been uh, uh, delayed a bit by the whole uh, rise of the Delta variant of mm. COVID. This is, we're recording this in early September 2021. So, yeah, we were hoping <laughs> for a big launch at the Texas Book Festival, but it's looking more and more like in-person stuff at the Texas Book Festival in October is going to be very limited. It's it's such a bizarre time, and you know, people may be listening to this decades from now, and, and there, you know, there might be an episode down the road reflecting back on the pandemic. Right. Hopefully, it will pass. That means it will have passed. Hopefully, it will pass. And there, there are glimmers of hope out there. Hospitalizations are starting to decline again. At some point, it will be a manageable problem. I don't think it's going to go away altogether. But with booster shots and stuff like that, like the flu. If you'd like to write to us, you can do it at mbarnes at statesman.com or jhager, H-H-E-R, at statesman.com. Thanks for tuning in. Happy trip. Just going to run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts.